Hey folks, you're listening to Scribbles and Spills, the podcast where creatives of all kinds expound on their art and spill their secrets. I'm your host, C.E. Hoffman, an author and screenwriter living with mental illness. You can find my books at cehoffman.net and follow me on Twitter at cehoffman2. Today's guest is our first musician on the show, though his creativity is boundless and so is his encouragement of other artists. TC Folk Punk began playing in bars when he was only 17, but tall enough to lie about his age. He's released a plethora of albums and played hundreds of gigs. In 2015, he added the titles film composer and actor to his resume when the Canadian indie comedy Love in the Sixth premiered at the Whistler Film Festival. Its sequel, Stupid for You, has since premiered on the festival circuit. His latest album, Breakfast in Bedlam, was recorded, mixed, and mastered in his Toronto apartment. So hi, TC. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. I mean, it's an honor to have you on here. You know, it's been so long since we've just been able to connect, like, as people, let alone as creatives. Yeah, yeah. We haven't seen each other in person in, well, since before the before the, the plague. So, uh, yeah, a couple of years. Which actually is in keeping with our theme. In fact, I think the last time we saw each other in person was when I was living in Little Italy in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because we were around the corner to that. Uh, some you recommended some little cafe, and they had amazing espresso. Espresso? Did I say espresso? I meant espresso. I'm pretty sure everyone <laughs> says espresso. No, it's not called that. <laughs> <laughs> it's espresso. Get it right. <laughs> not bad in letters, people. Yeah. Oh, but I love that too. I love that about language that we can, you know, kind of disabuse it, but that that's also just like the <laughs> yeah, evolution yeah. of speech, you know? I think that's really cool. Like even the history of the word nickname, it was initially an ick name and people just started slurring it all together. So it became a nickname. Oh, really? <laughs> an ick name. Okay. At least wow. that's what I've heard. I like, it could be Why wrong. It, oh, well, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with that. Well, yeah, colloquialisms are, are you know, sort of fascinating. And then the, the puns you can generate from them are... You know, also kind of interesting. Well, that's keeps the party going. Man. Yeah, and that's what I love so much about a lot of your art is there's there is an erudition in it. You know, you know your shit, but there's also quirkiness and playfulness and whimsy. Like, like for someone who hasn't listened to your music yet, how would you describe your sound? Like, would whimsical be one of the words that you use? Yeah, uh, yeah, lyrically probably, and there, and sometimes there might be some funny little nod to a you know famous punk guitar riff or something. I've got one song which it's it's been out of uh, print for years now, but it's called "She Dates Creeps," and it kind of kind of mm, borrows, shall we say, um, the intro to the Sex Pistols. Pretty vacant, you know, just little things like that. If you listen, to be you know, or the you know the bass line from My Sharona might suddenly pop up if you're really paying attention. I don't know, just any any wacky little in joke like that for anybody who's really paying attention there are lots of i guess they call them easter eggs i love easter eggs especially when they're just attributed to like one culture or counterculture so it sounds like you are yes. planting easter eggs for music lovers like people who cross a wide expanse of tastes yes yes, yes. 
It's milk chocolate for your ears, folks. Oh, I love that. That might already be the leading quote of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I know you've already referenced one song, which is amazing. And again, I mean, you have such an amazing track record of tracks. It's phenomenal, you know, how prolific you are. So this is a difficult question, but... (laughs) Which mm-hmm. of your songs best encapsulates your sound or the sound you hope to continue to achieve? Oh boy. Um, I guess I think there's, there's one, I put out an album in 2014 called lamest fast words. And uh, the first track on that is called, I overheard somebody telling me. And uh, I was always kind of happy with that one. That one just seemed to, to work. Um, it was a bit of a nod to, you know, some sort of musical heroes of mine, but I don't actually say their names. I just kind of hint at who they are. It's all kind of, you know, very, uh, sort of abstract poetry kind of thing. So, uh, but I, I've always liked that one. And I've always, it seems like I wrote that at a time when I, I'd done enough writing and gigging and whatever, you know, been in the trenches for long enough that I was actually able to kind of reflect on how did I get here? Well, what were the records that, you know, made me think this was a good job to have. So I think, yeah, I overheard somebody telling me it would probably be the, if I had to pick one, but I, you know, ask me in an hour and I'll, I'll have a completely different choice probably. But for now I gotta go with that. Well, I love it. That's your truth of the moment. And I think that lends mm. respect to the fact that art is forever in flux as is the artist. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, big time. Okay, so, I mean, I love this homage that you keep referencing. Your Easter eggs are all homage, and even this one song, which you felt did the job the best, because that's really how I define quality in art, too, where you're just like, that sentence is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And I don't know if you feel that same way about songs. Yeah. But... Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that that would apply to any art. Like, you know, for uh, somebody such as yourself writing poetry and that, you know, you go, oh, yeah, that line, got it. And I'm, I'll am i think, oh, yeah, that that chord shape there, got it. And a painter would go, yeah, that, that red splash of, you know, on the top corner, got it. You know, so it's, uh, yeah, you, you, you sort of have those moments where you're trying to, it's almost like you don't even know what you're going to, what you're trying to achieve. And then you, you accidentally see that you've done it and go, oh, there it is. It's like there's another invisible you, you know, looking over your shoulder going, uh, put that there. You know, <laughs> you don't realize invisible you has said that until you see the end result and go, ha ha, thank you, invisible me. Or thank me, invisible you. Or, uh, I, I don't know. I've like never heard a, a more adorable description to muse. Like this invisible <laughs> me hanging over my shoulder. I love that. That's so yeah, it's- that's because I blanked out on the word muse but (laughs) but okay that's really fun for me because that takes me in kind of almost two opposite directions because you're kind of talking about that spontaneity of creation you know where you don't really know what those splashes or those chord shapes are leading to until you reach the end so how do you write your music do you just pants it you know that's the term we would use in the literary world you know where you just you're just throwing yourself in it you don't have a clue what it's about or where it's going or how it's going to end you're just in the mood of it would you describe yourself as that or would you describe yourself as a plotter where you like to really get the rudiments down and you know what it's for and you know where it's going it depends on the song i mean sometimes i mean a lot of times you know, I thankfully live in a neighborhood that's kind of, it's a bit suburban. There's a lot of like tree, quiet 
tree-lined streets and that. So, you know, I'll do a lot of walking just to to go to the, the you know the grocery store or something. So I have these these long you know sort of twenty minute walks where I'm all by myself and just sort of like humming something to myself or whatever. So, I mean, sometimes I get an idea that way. Other times, you know, just like flash of lightning, there's a whole, there's like, you know, two lines of a song or they just appear. Um, a lot of times I'll wake up with something. They say the you know, Paul McCartney once said that the, there's these little twilight zones as you're just kind of falling asleep or just waking up in the morning. And it's like, whatever part of your brain is, is thinking about, well, I have to do my taxes and it's uh, this time and tomorrow I have to, what, all that shuts down. And it's like the other hemisphere takes over and goes, well, I'm just going to throw creative noises out there and blah, 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 and see what happens. So um, I, I, it's, uh, it, it would depend on the song. Like it, I, it just anywhere it comes from, I just, you know, but I, I, told, I promised myself when I got into this, when I was a kid that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to write lots of songs, however the hell I have to do it. I'm going to, you know, whatever get get songs written so that was it yeah see i love that though because i think there's a true humility in proper craftsmanship where it's exactly that where you're like i don't care if i'm gonna have to run out and look for muse if i'm gonna have to woo her with a bunch of flowers or if she is just gonna randomly show up at the bar and yay let's go you know like (laughs) i i like that you're just like i'm open to muse where wherever whenever however let's just do this i just want to make music and i think that's one of the reasons that Muse has visited you, visited you so frequently and in so many different forms, which I do want to get into, and I'm sure we will very soon. But first, because you did touch on this idea of when you were younger and you mm-hmm. were, it sounded like you consciously got into music. Can you give people a little more backstory there? Uh, yeah. Well, in, in my, the bio that I sent, I've been using the same gag and it's, it's pretty worn out by now for a lot of people, but it's, um, when I was four years old, my aunt gave me uh, a Beatles album and I listened to that and I just went, Oh, I'm going to be a Beatle when I grow up. Okay, Cause I, I, I thought it was like Menudo or something where they were just like, you know, well, maybe I'll replace George. I don't know. You know, <laughs> it's like, how old do I have to be to, to sign up, you know? So, uh, um, it turns out they weren't hiring. So I had to, uh, I had to do something else. And so that was, that was it. I mean, you know, and I was, you know, sort of influenced by other kids. I remember being grade five and, and everybody wanted to be a hockey player. And I was like, okay, well maybe I could be a hockey player. And that, you know, I, that wasn't me. I knew <laughs> pretty early on, I don't care about this. So, uh, it was just, yeah, it was, I don't know. It just grabbed me and, you know, whispered in my ear, Hey kid, you're doing this when you grow up, deal with it. You know, go back and out, just do it. So, um, that was it. And then it was just, you know, by the time I got my first guitar, when I was 12 and that was it. I was just completely absorbed, you know, taken over by this, you know, this, this possession that I'm just going to, I'm just going to do music. Mm. It just seemed like the coolest thing. I mean, it is one of the absolute coolest things. And that brings to mind for me, I, I reckon you've seen it. Uh, I think it's called 50 Feet from Stardom, that documentary about background yeah, singers. Yeah, it's not a while ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, excellent film. And I remember there's one male singer in it who says, you know, if you truly fall in love with music, you are fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the gift that keeps on giving. 
or taking, depending how you look at it. Yeah, I know. I know. It's like, I think Charlie Watts once said, we're just going to do quotes now, folks. For those of you listening, we're just going to like talk about musician quotes. But Charlie Watts was once talking about, I guess it was like the Rolling Stones 25th anniversary. And somebody was interviewing and they said, yeah, it's been, you know, five years of playing and 20 years of standing around backstage. <laughs> and then, oh, and then, oh, there's another great one. Somebody told me once, I think it was Zach Wild, the, the sort of heavy metal guitar player um, said, uh, uh, you better love the music because some days it doesn't love you. So, yeah, I think that's more music business though. I think that's more, you have to separate the, the actual creative thing you made from the business of, you know, touring and releasing a product and, you know, all that kind of kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea of separation, I think, is beneficial for our mental health because we can so readily get subsumed by the machine that unfortunately does dominate the creative industries. That all said, though, I think it is also important to approach it holistically and recognize, you know, that those hours backstage are part of it. They're the minutiae. And, and I think it's really the people who can withstand the minutiae and maybe even learn to love it who who are lifers and who are going to stick with it forever because no matter what we're we're just not discouraged we're not always seeking those high peaks all the time we're okay mm. with the valleys and we're okay with the lingering trails and you know the dead ends yeah. to nowhere right yeah well the great thing about you know with this you know you're in the valley but you're you're looking up at the next mountain going wow look at that mountain that's a great mountain can't wait to start climbing it you know and so that's what it's like with the you know it's like oh, i got to I got to email these people. I got to, you know, do some other nonsense to deliver posters or whatever. And why do people need posters? Can't they just follow me around? And can't, you know, can't I have like 40 stalkers come to all of my gigs? Geez, what a lot of work this is. But then, you know, you sort of go, yeah, but man, I'm going to play. Oh boy. You know, this is all worth it. So, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the flip side of it. You know, so yeah, when you're, when you're down the valley, you get to look up at the mountain and go, that's one hell of a nice looking mountain. I can't wait to get to the top of it. Cause when you're at the top of it, you can't see the rest of the mountain, right? Just looking, you're looking across and going, oh, there's the next mountain. I guess I'll go over there now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think you lose a lot. You lose almost everything when you overemphasize the peaks. Like, is that how you stay hungry? Is just like reminding yourself that, you know, getting on stage is enough and falling in love with the next melody is enough. Like, and is that how you resist getting chewed up by the machine? Um, maybe. I think I just, I'm just really... I think healthily irreverent about the machine in general too. You know, like showbiz is always, yeah, you know, I, I, I've always thought I'm really being really young and watching like the, you know, talk shows or whatever and just going, this just seems all schmoozy nonsense kind of ego driven. I don't know what the hell this is, but you know, you know, why is this guy talking? I just, you know, he put, he's in a movie, just show us the movie. I don't hear him talk. I want the movie. That's why he's, you know, that's what made him a big deal. He's got a movie out. Show us, just show us the movie for five minutes. (laughs) Johnny or Merv or whoever you are. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, I love that because you're right. There's so much just egotistical avarice in that because a lot of the times it is very thinly veiled marketing. And, and that mm-hmm. is the essence of a lot of that. That's a lot of how the machine has constructed that dialogue. But yeah. then, of course, here we are on a podcast. So I do think there is some value to letting the artists talk a bit, too. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, there's if you're, well, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe. I mean, I don't know how much of this is ego driven. I mean, should, you know, should I have said, oh, you don't want to talk to me? 
don't go on CE. Go find somebody interesting. Yeah, you know, I could have been really humble, but I'm. But I mean, the fact is, I'm. I'm. This is more like I'm chatting with a friend anyway, and we're just like, you know, we're just you know shooting the BS because um, this is this is the only way we can do it because we're thousands of miles away from each other now. Mm-hmm. Now we are. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, you know. There, there is that that whole yeah. I mean, I guess you need a certain amount of ego. Like a, a certain amount of it is healthy. You know, it, it's like anything, like you know, sugar or salt or whatever. Like you need a bit of it in. I mean, sugar, but okay, protein, uh, vitamin C, whatever. You need a certain amount of your diet, but you can't overdo it. So, so you need just enough ego to go. You know, I did this thing. I think it's, you know, good enough that someone else would maybe enjoy it. So I'm going to, you know, put it out there and maybe they'll enjoy it and I'll somehow get compensated for that because I do need groceries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but then it can go too far where, you know, like, like you know, be, you become a Kardashian or something. <laughs> you know, it's like, like the most boring, idiotic, Botoxed pile of, you know, <laughs> clan on the planet. And, so, and they're supposed to be interesting. Good Lord. I mean... Yeah, that does speak to just how far the bar has fallen. I'm not a fan of South Park, but they do have one brilliant episode where they find that the bar is so low, it's in the Marianas Trench. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's only because they haven't excavated the Marianas Trench down far enough yet. <laughs> but I mean, I like what you're saying, though. It's it's that dance not only of art, but of humanity. You know, be humble, but don't be self-deprecating. Be ambitious, but don't be narcissistic. And I think that the best way to manage that balance is for your art to retain some purpose beyond you. It's obviously we all have stories to tell and there should be us in our art. It should be our catharsis or our play or whatever it is that we want our self-improvement Sure, go for all of that. But I think again, for people to not get discouraged or beaten down by the machine, we need an actual reason that we're doing this. Hmm. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I you know, I there's there's. I mean, God, this, this whole conversation is about balance, really. But um, there is that balance. Like, I mean, I know. Okay, yeah, it's great to hear a good song. You know, a song will lift somebody up, or you know, make them think, or inspire them, or do something like that. So, okay, so that that's the kind of stuff I try to write. I mean, anybody could just write a "Hey, baby, 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 baby" kind of song. <laughs> and, you know, you do that in your sleep with it. You know, with the the access of awesome chord change and all that, you know, um, but that's been done a zillion times. So, but at the same time, I'm very much aware of the fact that I could write the greatest song in the world and it ain't going to cure cancer. Mm. So, you know, I'm like, I, what I do is a value up to a point, but I want to, I want to certainly like hit the, you know, hit that point as best I can. And I realize that beyond that, Hey, I'm just some guy writing songs. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I feel there's like that line, you know, again, all of these lines, all these boundaries and balances, you know, where everyone has gifts. And I think some gifts are tools to help people survive and others are tools to help people thrive. And while I would mostly put the arts in the latter category, because like you say, we're not conducting heart surgery here. But at the same time, I would argue we are kind of conducting heart surgery because, you know, for all the hard times I've been through, for sure, I can I can unequivocally maintain that a band like My Chemical Romance saved my life at least some nights. Yeah, yeah, 
I know. So that's, I mean, yeah. And I guess, you know, if you're talking literal heart surgery, you know, that's, that's a thing that's very much in the moment, but then maybe there are little, little, maybe arc put little, puts little tiny band-aids on the heart mm-hmm. all the time, you know, and maybe we'll stave off the actual literal heart surgery, you know, I mean, man, there's so many, you know, studies about music and I'm sure other arts do this, but I, you know, I've read the ones about music cause I'm just, you know, in that, that world, but mm-hmm. yeah, there are fascinating studies about the benefits of listening to music and, and then the extra benefits of playing music or performing music. Um, so yeah, yeah. So it's got, I guess, in a way, there's. It's almost like it's a, it's a preventative therapy, maybe. Yeah, I just love that idea of band aids on the heart. Because you're right, it's not necessarily like the. Oh well, it is physically pragmatic because, like you were referencing, you know, all of the neurological benefits to listening and playing it. There, mm-hmm. there is, you know, that definitely bears credence. But I think ultimately, the thing that's so important about the arts is its transcendence into those realms that we can't necessarily identify at least not yet you know it is about that mm-hmm. soul heart as opposed to that physical heart yeah yeah and what is the connection well, we haven't found the connection yet but i mean that's not to say it's it's not there i mean if you look at back at it was it was you know what 200 years ago that doctors thought well got a problem let's stick some leeches on you mm-hmm. that'll work and you know 200 years from now people look back and everything we thought right now about medicine and went what a bunch of idiots (laughs) i mean i love that i love that we're always growing and i think the great Mm. thing about art is it is a place you can practically grow in your skills and whatnot but it's also again on that flip side of it that soul heart aspect of it like it's immeasurable exploration that ultimately is just bringing us into a greater sense of awareness, not only of the world, but like with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All these things are interwoven and in, in sometimes in ways we don't understand. Yeah. Like for you, like if you think of music that way, whether you have before or whether I'm just positing this to you now, like mm-hmm. how does music help you get to know yourself better? Uh, well, uh, my, my singing voice will tell me if I've had too much dairy in the last hour. Um, um, I don't know. I, I maybe that's a good question. I mean, maybe I kind of already know myself and that's why I'm doing music. Mm. There's that side of it too, you know? Absolutely. And again, like, that's why I love your origin story. You know, when you're like, oh, I bet it's tired for people to hear, but I think that's the kind of origin story that never gets old. Cause it's like, yeah four fucking years old <laughs> that's just destiny knocking right on your no destiny didn't knock on your door destiny took a beatles record and kind of bonked you over the head with it shoved it through the mail slot yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're right yeah. in a way on the one hand we're discovering ourselves on the one hand we're returning to ourselves on the other hand because apparently now we have three hands which we totally do <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, I could play guitar like a fiend. If oh I, my god! Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Um, we're already, <laughs> we're already here. You know, we're yeah. we're totally fine as we are. We don't actually have to go searching. We don't actually have to be growing. We don't have to always be moving. We are who we are, and everything else can just be play. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That's like uh, there's a, a great book called The Tao of Pooh. 
uh, by Benjamin Hobbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of the the underlying message of that. You already are who you are. You just got to, I don't look in the mirror more or something, but, and then, you know, to to really, because I, man, I'm always drawn to like the humorous version of everything. But um, so on Second City Television, Second SCTV, there were these characters uh, called the Schmengi brothers. And it was John Candy and Eugene Levy played these two brothers who were a polka band. (laughs) And, uh, and somehow this, this whole thing got kind of an extra revival. And I remember them like being in their leader hosen and in character and everything and showing up on like, on like Johnny Carson or David Letterman or something. And uh, you know, talking about how they, they, they'd broken up for a while and then, and then, whoever the host of the talk show was said, well, why was that? And Eugene Levy said his in, in character said, well, you know, we broke up because I, I, you know, I had to go away and I, I had to find myself, but turns out I was there the whole time, Aww. you know, which is this kind of like, but then there's this layer of like, well, man, that's okay. That says a lot. Yeah. Well, you know, so this, this joke that has this, you know, whole heavy gravitas to it, you know? I mean, I love that. And I, that's why I love talking to you because I feel like you have a very different perspective on art and your relationship with art. And I love that because it reminds me that there's no one size fits all for the soul. You know, I love that you're always just like approaching things from this, this humor and this lightheartedness. And to me, that's just like, it's a very joyous perspective. And I also think it's a perspective of resilience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it, it's, it's had to be, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I've had a, a difficult life, but uh, you know, there was, I managed to somehow find this way of dealing with, you know, the teenage years and, you know, high school peer pressure and all the rest of that. I mean, I, yeah, I, I showed up in high school, you know, being a big Beatles fan and they were long gone by that point. So right there, I sort of went, I guess I'm going to stand out. Okay. <laughs> so I was like, fine. Cause I'm not, you know, cause I'm not going to fit. I'm not going to buy a bunch of Russian triumph albums to try to fit in because that, <laughs> so I'd rather be a weirdo who has an excellent record collection. Oh, that's another real quotable moment already from this <laughs> podcast. And again, I think it speaks to that broad truth of how art can give us the bravery to be ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if you're the artsy kid, then everybody goes up oh, probably weird, but okay. It's, they're one of us, but they're the weird one of us, you know. Like every every gang has its uh has its horse shack. Yeah, it's it's funny because <laughs> I, I think of that so much where it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> if you're like, you know, the awkward kid, you know, or the the loser or something like, especially if you're the arty one, I I just wish that there was some kind of understanding in the adolescent zeitgeist that it's like that's okay. It means that you're going to be an artist, so things will still suck in 10 or 20 years, but. You know, that's the thing. I think, yeah, (laughs) I think the, um, the, (laughs) you were, but you meant to stop it, but okay. Right. Um, I, you know, I think the, like a lot of people who will label another fellow, you know, high school attendee as a weirdo are overcompensating. Try to try because they think they're weird. They think, man, I'm pretty weird. I better, I better normal, I better normie myself big time here, you know, so I can fit in. And a lot of it's just, you know, it's like if everyone was just like their own weird selves, then it might be a pretty cool school to go to. 
but it's only when you get those people who are and this is the other thing too like it's like man i you know like i went, I went to a number of different high schools over the years because my folks moved a bit in that but you know the anybody i kind of re- ever hear of from a, an old school or something it's like oh yeah this guy who was you know you know he, he i don't know some guy for the football team or something was you know caught in some bizarre scandal or whatever oh oh now who's the weirdo hey dude you know mm-hmm. so you know i don't know it's just but it's this whole you know you can get a whole psychology of, and i think um in the, the book naked ape the naked ape desmond morris kind of gets into this about you know, teenagers are so suddenly your brain's going, okay, well, that's enough growing and eating stuff for, you know, a decade and a half. Now it's time to breed, you know, and you've got to find a mate. And it's got this, this whole, like this new section of your brain grows. And it's like this, you know, bizarre kind of like, it's like this megaphone just yelling at you, go breed, go breed, mm. you know, go get laid, go get laid, you know, do what you have. And then, and, or, well, you go, well, okay. In order to do that, I guess I gotta, you know, I gotta seem like I'm the cool guy in the class or the captain of the team or the head cheerleader, you know, that'll, that'll increase my chance. It's all this game, you know, like, you know, once you realize that, you know, that's not you thinking that's your hormones yelling at you, tell them to sit down. Then, uh, you know, I don't know where I was going with that, but anyway. No, no, I like it because I think it's all about, you know, finding your authenticity because what you were just describing, you know, about like the status granted by sex, like what, and, honestly usually then more for more masculine people because you don't get the same uh, props when you're sexually active as a femme unfortunately but it should be equal. yeah it's that's just but that's a whole other podcast we won't even get into that now but like it's the right. same it's the same thing it's just seeking status it's seeking money it's seeking you know the charts it's seeking something external to yeah. validate yeah. your worth yeah. And I, I don't know what is about is it is it because at that age, like everything that validated your worth was external in 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 the, sh- the shape of, you know, your mom giving you an extra cookie because you cleaned your room when you're eight years old or whatever. Like where, you know, like it's something I don't know. It's sort of like our childhood sort of leads us down this path to a certain mode of thinking. But then that mode of thinking doesn't translate very well at a certain age. And then you have to kind of like deal with being like, you know, stupid for a few years. And then after you got, you come and go, oh, man, oh, wait, I know how not to be stupid. OK, great, good. And then then you're an adult. I mean, if that's so, I think nobody reaches adult. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I got there a couple of Wednesdays ago for five minutes and I didn't like it. So right. But again, yeah. it's that's the point too. And I think getting in contact with art as early as possible really helps us understand all of that, that there's no actual end yeah. in sight and there needn't be. And again, that like the things that your society may value may not be inherently worthy. And you need to find out what your values are, even if that means standing alone, which actually kind of brings me into another line of questioning here because you like you have such a diy almost kind of folk punk style like you mm-hmm. usually record for from what i know most the most if not all of the instrumentations you usually you produce edit master your mm-hmm. own works so like in that essence i would describe you as a soloist but then at the same time you get involved in film which i'm excited to ask you about very soon here so do you identify more as a soloist or more as a collaborator? 
Um, well, probably soloist by default, not so much by plan or design. Um, it was, uh, I, I think just because it's, it's a lot easier to run a solo gig than a band. Um, you know, somewhere around the late 1990s, it got to a point where if you're in a band, you're just going to lose money. And I didn't, I mean, there are guys out there who play as a hobby and that's fine, but I'm like, nah, this is my career. I'm going to make money. So, so in a way being solo was just a matter of jettisoning, you know, dead weight. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Apologies to former bandmates who may be listening. Um, but, uh, you know, it was just, it was just a matter of like cutting overhead. So, um, you know, being able to write the songs and, more or less sing and play guitar i went well this is you know i mean i've seen uh, billy bragg was a huge influence and if you ever see a billy bragg concert it's amazing guy just gets up with with an electric guitar stands there does the show makes it look like the easiest job in the world but he does it so well you go holy crap wow why don't more people do that so um it that i think so i i think as a, a soloist um just for you know pragmatic reasons or practical reasons um but collaboration's fine um i think collaboration is kind of like it's almost like having a new roommate like you gotta i've never met anybody i don't think where i could just sit down and boom start writing you gotta kind of get to know the person and go okay what's your you know what kind of stuff do you listen to where are we going with this you know are you gonna are you gonna like a b mind record there or not you know um it's only it's like you know having a new roommate so, you know, you get to know them a bit and then you can, you know, you can, you can write a song together or you can decide who gets which side of the fridge or, you know, same thing. Yeah. So running with that metaphor, you've basically said that you choose to live musically alone because it's easier and more affordable, but is it honestly your preference or do you kind of miss having roommates? Um, I think... I think it's yeah, good one. I got to think back on all my roommates. So <laughs> I thought hundreds of roommates. Um, I think for the most part, I I prefer being solo. I would like to. There are times when I think it'd be nice to have a band, but then you know you get into the thing where, and, and certainly on on record now that you know since the the um, you know the pandemic started, and I I, I managed to get serious about home recording because you know, there's nothing else going on and you couldn't go. I mean, it was all started, you know, and the world was falling apart. You couldn't book studio time or anything, you know? So, um, now that I'm, I'm able to sit home and, and, you know, start recording a song, I can sort of record some tracks and go, Hmm, eh, maybe I'll put a little, you know, brushes on a snare drum here, like violent femmes, or eh, I could probably put a tambourine on that song. So there's kind of like a mini band sound. And I think I would be okay with, you know, if I went back to playing live, having a couple of other guys playing with me, um, I don't know. But then there's the matter of so often live sound is really crap on stage, like monitors are not sufficient and, and that. So I don't know. Man, I didn't I didn't answer that question. At all. I took a very long time to not give you an answer, didn't I? No, I think you answered it really honestly, which is that, you know, art, particularly in relation to other people is so complicated. But I like what you said too, again, about like you having this new availability in your art, this ability to tinker with it. And some of that is even almost due to COVID. Would you say that the isolation that we've experienced these last few years has actually helped your creativity? I think it has. Yeah. 
I do. Awesome. I think it got me off a treadmill um, of like, you know, constantly lugging gear out to the bars in Toronto. And that's the other thing too, is that I would rely on public transit because it's, you know, me and the guitar and I'd have a little, you know, pedal or something that would emulate the amp. I just had to book a gig at a place that had a PA system. So all I had to bring is a guitar and a, a knapsack. Um, but I think that was, that was so time consuming. Um, and sort of like, you know, well, I'm going to do another gig. I guess I better, you know, run over all these songs. So I was, I was kind of rehearsing the same songs over and over and over. So I was in a bit of a rut that I didn't realize was happening. And then the pandemic just freed me from that. It was like, wow, I don't, I don't, I don't, that song, I, don't have to, I may never play that song live again. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, is the world ending? I don't know. So, you know, maybe that was my last gig couple of weeks ago um but then you, you go well okay if i don't have to memorize that song maybe i can spend that time working on a new one and so i've been like from a you know recording standpoint i've just been cranking stuff out you know much more than i ever did in the past i love that and i love that you really pointed to that greater truth that sometimes crisis unfortunately is what it takes to shake us up on a societal as well as an individual level yeah. Yeah. It's an ice bucket over the head for sure. You, <laughs> you know, uh, I love that. And of course, I think you're right. I think especially for very introverted creatives, there was at the very least no stopping us during COVID. I think for some of us, it was like, oh, good, I can finally work on whatever. But of course, there is something that we've missed out on. I mean, you and I met at one of your Toronto shows in this cute, cozy bar whose name I don't <laughs> even remember. Um... <laughs> The or orchid orchard something it was it was on trendy bluer west <laughs> not to be confused with trendy queen street west exactly it was more it was like trendy queen street west but a few blocks north and had and was not quite as vegan so, um, <laughs> the hipsters the the beards the beards were just as good on just as long on bluer as they were on queen Oh, yeah, the beards are great everywhere in Toronto. Let's give props <laughs> to those beards. And, yes, yay beards. And I mean, of course, it was spontaneous for me entering that bar. I was just visiting Toronto at the time mm -hmm. when I was still living in London. So it was like a totally spontaneous meeting. And we have since wow. forged a friendship and a creative collaboration that's lasted years. And yeah. that kind of meeting couldn't have happened during COVID. Well, not if we want to get served, because we would have been the only two people in the place. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like, I'm wondering like how much, how much has this turn of events these past few years, like impacted an artist's ability to network? Well, um, yeah, that's, that I've encountered that question before. And for me, I don't think it's had a, like, you know, losing going to bars a negative impact because I, I never found I really networked that much with, with bands, uh, especially at their own gigs, because, you know, they're on stage playing and it like, you know, <laughs> I mean, what's, so, so like the, you know, the lead singer says, Hey, what do you guys want to hear? And am I, am I supposed to see off in the back? Let's do lunch next week. You know, it's like, let's, <laughs> you know, so you couldn't, you can't really network. And then, you know, like the, the band comes off stage and, and, you know, they're, busy talking to their, you know, their uncle who came out to see them for the first time in 10 years. And, and then, Oh, time's up. Guy got back on stage. So it's not, I never found that I did a lot of networking with other musicians. Um, I was just somebody else at the bar holding a drink, you know? Um, so I, I found that I, um, 
I've done more kind of networking, I think, online, um, you know, through the socials. I mean, even that's kind of a flawed system as well, but um, at least I don't have to go out and it's cheaper to drink at home. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, it sounds like you're just, you're running your own ship very well. Of course, though, you're your artistic pursuits are not without their collaborations, namely your collaboration with Jude Klassen, who wrote and directed, I want to say both Love in the Sixth and Stupid for You. Is that correct? She did. She did. Yeah. Wrote and directed both. Yeah. That's amazing. So what was it like working with her, like this really powerful artist? Well, that was kind of cool. That was probably the easiest collaboration I've ever had. Like we just sort of clicked as people, like very similar sense of humor. Um, and just like really similar kind of kind of uh, teenage years, and and you know we were we were both uh, the weirdos with the Elvis Costello albums and things like that. So we we were able to compare notes on things. She, she's from you know Chilliwack, BC, and while she was in Chilliwack, I was in Owen Sound, Ontario. So it's you know similar kind of hickish, hicktownish kind of sorry Owen Sound, but you know own it okay. Um, you know, similar kind of like, you know, man, we're surrounded by hosers and when can we get out of here kind of memories, right? Um, and I think we we had enough sort of similarities in our musical tastes and record collections that when it came time to start collaborating on songs, one of us could say, hey, how about, you know, this song? Do you remember this, this artist? And I go, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I had that song. And she'd be like, yeah, let's, well, what if we did something like that? So we, we had these great kind of, we just, it's like our, our knowledge and, and pop culture awareness just overlapped a lot. And so we were able, it just streamlined the whole process. You didn't have to explain something to somebody because they already knew it. You know, so it's that kind of instinctive, kind of like snappy repartee, like a, you know, like an old Thin Man movie. I love that because it is about the <laughs> chemistry. I think that that's yeah. what makes, you know, dating and making art. <laughs> actually flow by as opposed to just grind by you know is that sense yeah and, and I think a lot of that not all truthfully but I think a lot of that can be derived from what you described that feeling that for whatever reason you are from the same time and place even if you're not literally from the same time and place mm -hmm. yeah you almost feel like you're, you're you're like the flip side of the same coin that this person's on or something that's great. I love that. And of course, first I do, I mean, this has been a great time. We still have a bit of time here too, uh, but I do want to make sure that we're touching on your, I think it's still your latest album. You release things so quickly. I'm not even <laughs> sure if that's true anymore, but Breakfast in Bedlam, first of all, love the name. Definitely want to get into that, but tell us a little bit yep. about this project, where people can listen to it, but also, yeah, what was behind this this project out of the many other projects, what lit the fire in your belly for this album? Um, okay. Well, first off you, it's on my Bandcamp page and I've done a somewhat clever thing, I think. Um, uh, so I, my, the URL for the website I had years, I still own the URL URL is uh, folkpunk. Dot com f o l k p u n k dot com really simple if you go there it just redirects you to my Bandcamp page and you can just listen to everything on there Bandcamp's great so it's all the lyrics are on there and you know it's like name your price if you want to buy anything please do um, and then th so this was in a way it was almost part two of uh, the first thing I did 
during the pandemic. No, actually second. Okay. Cause when the pandemic first started, I had this little instrumental project with some other guys called the Bumble Bats and then that all fizzled. So the first thing I did completely sort of at home on my own was an album called Famous for 15 People, mm-hmm. which came out in the spring of 2021. And it was uh, six songs, I think, kind of like mini album. I don't, I, yeah, see, I think I don't do full length albums anymore because people don't have the time or the attention span. They will never get the last song. So for all of you out there thinking you got to do a full album, no, don't <laughs> do, do a series of EPs that are three months apart. It works out way better. Um, anyway, so I, I did that album and I had a couple of songs that didn't make it onto that, but were still, I thought, pretty good. Just need a little bit of tweaking. And then I had, you know, a couple of some other songs that I had been playing that um, had never been released or had been released so long ago in such a different form that they were unrecognizable. And I, I think it was, I think I just wanted to be, you know, com- completist or completionist or whatever the word is. I thought, okay, let's get everything released and out there. And then, you know, if I never gig again, you can still hear these songs. Um, so it was just kind of to, to, you know, finish up a few things. Um yeah, that was that was basically yeah, it. Was just another another album. I had the material. I was happy enough with it, and and I had the the wherewithal and gear to record it really easily at home, and uh, just sort of went for it. So it was kind of a tying up of loose ends. Yeah, I think in a way, and I, I'm seeing that more in hindsight. Um, it was yeah. I think it's just well, this this song should be released, you know, because people used to like it when I played it live. So you know, let's just make sure nothing's missing. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's it. And then I've got you know I've done just before I did the I released um, Breakfast in Bedlam. I had another instrumental project and that came out in January of this year called Cameron Noise, and it's kind of a like a. I've described it as Booker T and the MGs meet the Smithereens and Paul McCartney's attic. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's like kind of like a you know heavy you know grindy power pop thing, but with a Hammond B three organ as you know playing the melody. So there's no lyrics. It's like a complete instrumental band project, and it's been doing great. So I'm, there's a second Camera Noise album coming out. Um, I think probably in August. The way things are going. Awesome, and is. Is that on its own separate band camp or can you find that through your TC folk punk? It, well, if you go to the folk punk band camp, I think there's a, if you like this artist, check out these recommendations sort of thing. So it's, it's on there, but it's all, if you just search for Cameron noise, all one word, C-A-M-E-R-O-N-O-I-S-E, uh, it'll come up. There's a Twitter and there's a farce book and there's a, um, what do you call that thing? Instagram. No, actually, no, sorry. There's no Instagram. There's no Instagram. There's a, but there's a Twitter and a Facebook and a Bandcamp and, um, oh, and a YouTube channel. That's it. Oh, that's great. I mean, again, it's, I think that's one of the things, and I'm myself, I'm pretty blessed in this regard too. Even you were talking about Breakfast in Bedlam where you're like, yeah, it was just kind of those leftover songs mostly that I realized still had a cohesive element and I just need to work on them a bit. Like that's a really nice feeling. You know, when you mm-hmm. have that catalog behind you where you're like, oh, I've kind of hit a slump. Let's go into my big wacky book you know, of disposed (laughs) ideas and see if there's any scraps there I could make into something. I just, yeah, Yeah, I just, I love that. Just as that sentiment for like, even throwaways can just become their own thing. And of course, because I mean, I love how even if you're doing just an instrumental set, like 
there's still such a lyrical component to what you're doing just with the album titles and the song titles. So again, Breakfast in Bedlam, love it. Is that a reference to the Bedlam we were experiencing with COVID or is there another element there I'm not getting? I think so. That was like just some little punny turn of phrase that I'd had kicking around for a while. I got, I got like a notebook just full of like wacky album titles, you know, I'll never, I won't live long enough to record that many albums, but there's hundreds of them. So I I sort of saw that one. I thought, yeah, Breakfast in Bedlam, that that kind of seems like the way the world is. And like, you know, in bed, because it was like, well, there's no job to go to. And I'm just kind of lying here. What's going on? And time is all stretchy and weird now. And but even though I'm lying here doing nothing, there's complete chaos in the world at the same time. And so it just seemed like a a title that, yeah, this this kind of sums up where we all are, maybe. So I'm going to I'm going to use it. And then that got reflected in the the lyrics too. Is one song, uh, two fifteen, which was written right after they you know they discovered the uh, the grave sites at, at that former residential school in Kamloops, and that was just a oh man. I like that was I was just really just upset and angry, and just I don't know. I like I I sort of tried to put it in words, and it was it came out as a very angry song. Um, cause I was just pissed off at the powers that be and, and, um, you know, how we could as a species ever get to that, that point. I, this is, uh, <laughs> I can't, it's like, I just, I get emotional. I can't, I, I lose the, you know, I, I'm no longer verbose. It's like, I just, I just want to like get angry and, you know, fix something. Well, I'm sure that the song does its part to do that, which is, you know, the best political value of art, you know, is its ability to disseminate, to disseminate, you know, our opinions on these issues that we're still Mm -hmm. correcting, that we're still, still working on. And I think that just leads perfectly into my next question, which is, are you hopeful about the future? Uh, Yes and no. I mean, I, you know, um, during the pandemic, I've seen, and granted these, you know, these people are, they get a lot of attention, but they're, they're probably minority. But I, I don't know. I've seen corners of, of the human species just sink to such levels of selfishness and stupidity. I think, holy fuck, I shared DNA with that idiot. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. So um, I don't know. I'm Maybe I'm humorously cynical because I sort of go, yeah, you know, well, lots of species have come and gone on this planet. Dinosaurs, man, we're nothing compared to dinosaurs. I mean, those things were impressive and they were around for hundreds of millions of years. We've just been like a blip on the radar comparatively. Um, You know, maybe we'll hang around, maybe we won't. Um, And I keep remembering, uh, there's this movie called The Untouchables. It came out in the 80s and it was about the Elliot Ness and the whole Al Capone thing in Chicago and that in the 1930s. And Sean Connery played this uh, this cop in it, and I, it is a little convoluted part of the story, and I, and I haven't seen the movie in years. But all I remember is somehow the main characters wound up at the American Canadian border, I, I think out in the Rockies, and they're trying to stop some uh, whiskey smugglers or something like that. And so these guys are on horses, and they're being led by this gung ho RCMP. Uh, sergeant or captain or whatever, who's decided he's, you know, they should all just charge at these guys, you know? And so, so Sean Connery's on this horse and he's watching all this, all these dumb ideas happen from these guys in uniform. And he, and he mutters to himself, Oh, what the hell? You got to die of something. 
and I just, I, I like, I've had that line in the back of my head. Go, yeah, well, you got to die of something, you know. So enjoy the ride before you get there, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, it's always about choice, you know, choice in how we approach things, choice in how we answer those calls. You know, I'm still getting that image of that part of you that always knew you were going to grow up and write songs, but maybe was hesitant to really accept that, you know, that maybe there was a part of you that did want to just be a hockey player like everyone else claimed they also wanted to be. And again, that's all just part of like what we've been talking about, just that process. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder how many, you know, um, I, I, I see this sometimes like, uh, you know, some kid, especially now that I've had kids who've gone through school and you see one of their classmates who, you know, you start to get the feeling this, this kid wants to be an artist or something, but his dad's like, you're going to play hockey and we're going to, you know, it's, I don't know. You see people who get, you know, sort of railroaded into something there they don't really want to do often by maybe their parents not paying attention, close enough attention and just sort of going, Oh, you're that, you know, I don't know. So I, but at least I, I was lucky in that I went, no, I'm doing this. I'm just, I'm doing this rock and roll thing. That's it. There's nothing, nothing else you've offered me has, you know, has been able to compete. So nice try. Thanks everybody. You can, you can go home now. Well, and I'm so grateful for that because that's how we met, you know, so props yeah. to you for following your heart. And I think I'll just close off um, with what would you say to a kid who has heard the call to be a musician or to be an artist, but doesn't quite yet know how to answer that call? Uh, well, if, if you've heard the call then um, that's that's half of it because some people, you know, never quite hear the call. They, you know, they've got their, their phone on mute or something, whatever. But, uh, you know, if you know, then you, it might take a bit of negotiating. Hopefully, you know, you know, hopefully you have parents who aren't, um, you know, so closed-minded that they're going to, you know, force you against your will to be something you're not. But sometimes that's what parents do. Um, just Just do what you can. Like, treat it as a hobby at first and get really good at the hobby until you're ready to, to, you know, strike out on your own. Maybe, um, it would depend. I mean, there's so many different, you know, personal situations, but overall, if it's what you want to do, go for it. And, you know, somebody, I, I read this interesting quote or I heard somebody say this recently, um, that you ever notice how, when, you know, really rich people have kids, you know, like a, a kid is just born into a wealthy family. Um, they go to school for art. <laughs> You know, it's like they don't they don't go, oh, wow, can't wait to be an accountant. Can't can't wait to be a CEO. They just go, wow, OK, well, I don't have to work anymore. So I'm doing this with my life. And so, yeah, art, art would probably be a lot of people's first choice mm -hmm. if there weren't all these. Yeah, but what about, you know, coming up all the time? Exactly. And thank goodness that we both are just ignoring those whatabouts <laughs> and just doing what we want. Yep. Yep. Fingers in our ears going, nah, 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 Yep. Okay. Well, this has just been fantastic. TC, thank yeah. you so, so much for being on with us. Yeah. It's been great chatting with you. Great to hear from you again. Absolutely. All right. So everyone, that was TC Folk Punk. Remember to check him out on Bandcamp and on Twitter. And remember to tune in next time. Until then, I'm C.E. Hoffman. See you soon.